Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Harpoonomics. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic, fantabulous co-host, Dan Valley. We have a goal today to keep this episode under an hour, which is basically unfathomable whenever Dan and I are the ones recording together. While I'm going through this introduction, Dan is looking through our history of episodes to see if we've even done that in like the last few years. And he's, he's shaking his head. So I don't think he's going to find anything, but we are doing a mailbag episode. We have a ton of great questions. We're going to try to get through them all and still keep it under an hour. Um, wish us luck because we'll, we'll probably need it. So before we get into the questions, my favorite question to ask is always, Dan, how's it going? I am doing fantastic. So I did find that we published an episode. This goes against us giving it under an hour because we're already on a tangent. We published a 56-minute episode on January 7th. That is our last episode that was under an hour. It was a mailbag. I can't remember if it was a solo mailbag or not, though. It was a Blazers fire sale, and I never distinguish it in the thing, but I do remember there was a round. It was. It was. It was. It was a solo mailbag. Yeah. Then that, that really doesn't count. So I will, I guess, try and continue to find it. But as of... We have not published even an episode. Forget about both of us being on it. Even when we've had guests, there's not been a sub one hour. There's been one sub one hour episode and it was a solo one. Um, nope. Caitlin Cooper was on that one for the Indiana Pacers in December. We've had two sub one. Oh, wait. Nope. You weren't not. You weren't on that one. I don't. We look, we can't keep going. There's no chance. There's you and I. There's no chance. Let's see if we can make history then. Right. Okay. Now. Let's do it. You're Lightning round. Everything's good with you? You're ready? Everything's good with me. Let's do it. Let's jump right in. Going through the Discord mailbag questions first. Uh, this one comes from Demos Cole. I apologize if I butchered the hell out of that. Does Bam at a bio have a legitimate chance for defensive player of the year, given the fact that he has a better defensive rating, more defensive win shares, and opponent points in the paint than Rudy Gobert, who is right now considered the favorite? I would say, yes, he has a chance just because it feels like this defensive player of the race of the year race is so topsy-turvy because the leading candidates have all missed so much time. So, I mean, Bam Adebayo has only played 44 games because he had the thumb injury that he had to recover from. Rudy Gobert has missed time. Draymond Green has missed time, so on and so forth. Personally, I think that one of the leading Celtics defenders should be the front runner right now. Whether you want to have Robert Williams III or Marcus Smart, you can make cases for both of them. Smart through the versatility, the point of attack defense, the off-ball defense. Williams, because he's such a suffocating presence on the interior, they both spent a lot of time on the floor for a defense that throughout the season has been arguably the best in the league and certainly has been over the last few weeks and months because it has been leaps and bounds better than anyone else. So I think Bam has a case because he's been so impactful when available and should theoretically be available during the stretch run when he's able to make that final impression. I don't know that he's the leading figure right now because he's suffering from the same drawback that all of the typical leaders are suffering from. Yeah. And I don't know how you, because Gobert missed most of his time with COVID this year, I believe. And he still played like 200 minutes more than Bam. So the, the gap in playing time right now isn't significant, but I don't know if the context under which they missed it matters where it's like, I wouldn't, I'm not, I don't think it should. Well, my whole thing is, if we're talking about the MVP discussion, I'm going to give it to Joel Embiid over Kevin Durant because I'm not even going to factor in that Joel Embiid so far has missed time only with COVID for the most part, where Durant missed all that time with an injury. The gap in minutes is obviously bigger. So perhaps that this is why it's so different. 
I would say Bam has a chance, and at this point might even be likely to finish in the top three. My preference would still be Rudy Gobert there, just because I think he impacts the geometry of the floor more when you're looking at, it's not just his ability to send a back or deter shots at the rim, like more so than Bam Adebayo, who's not like this dominant rim protector necessarily anyway. His, their values are so different where Bam is like rooted in versatility more than any one elite skill, I feel like. Uh, you might even count he's bet he's the better one-on-one defender. If you have to defend Giannis, you you want Bam 10 times out of 10. Uh over Gobert. But like teams won't even take floaters if Gobert's anywhere near the basket because they're so afraid of him. And I do think he's gotten a little bit, or not a little bit better. I think he's always been, let's say, undervalued or underestimated when he is pulled away from the basket. So he would be my pick, but I think you hit on all the necessary points where it's there doesn't really feel like I know Gobert's the consensus favorite, but if someone told me they voted for Mikael Bridges as the defensive player of the year, I'd buy it. So Jared I, Jackson Jr., Giannis, there are there are a ton of options. And I, I was actually looking at the the DraftKings odds per Vegas Insider um while while you were talking here. And at 14 players are listed. This is as of March 9th. So it is a little bit outdated. Bam Adebayo is not one of the 14 players listed, which I find interesting. Rudy Gobert is the favorite at minus 155, followed by Giannis at plus 475, Jaron Jackson Jr. at plus 950, Draymond Green at plus 1400, Robert Williams at plus 1600, and then Mikhail Bridges, Joel Embiid, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, Matisse Teibel, DeAndre Ayton, Jimmy Butler, Drew Holiday, and Marcus Smart. I think, I think it's ridiculous that he's not on there. I also get it because he's only played 44 games. Yeah. But then again... So have some of the players on that list. Yeah, I mean, when you're, I just said, like, he's played how many fewer minutes than, than Gobert at this point? He's at, so Bam is at, it's in 44 games. He's played 1460 on the minutes, and Rudy Gobert is at 52 games, 1662. So it's like he's only playing four more games or eight, excuse me, than Bam. That's not, he should definitely be on there. You're right. I would say Giannis at plus 475, though, if you're better, that's, mm-hmm. That's great value because I do think there just might be the element of Rudy Gobert's won it three times already. People generally don't, not generally, but there are a lot of people that don't like, Giannis is more likable than Rudy Gobert. That's just, I don't know that that's fair, but Giannis is more liked than Gobert just when you're looking at the perception. Plus 475 for Giannis. I know Milwaukee's defense is struggling. It's not Giannis's fault that they're struggling. So that's, I almost want to place a bet on Giannis to win. This really does feel like a year, though, where just like anyone could win it. Because I I feel like you can easily make a case for Robert Williams, for Jaron Jackson Jr., for Gobert, for Giannis, for Draymond Green, because of the value he's shown in his absence, especially if he does come back this this following week and and performs at a high level. There there are a lot of options. Yeah, he Draymond Green with 34 games and just a thousand eighteen minutes, basically. I don't think he has a chance, but this is the award. I think you can make a case because it's a weird year. I would I wouldn't personally make that case. I'm also not going to turn my nose up at someone who does. It wouldn't shock me if he made the top three still. It would shock me if he yeah. won just because of that minutes thing. And this is the award and we'll eventually do an awards pod. Defensive player of the year it's the, I think it's the only award where I just don't even look at it as having like, I, if you ask me who my favorite is right now, I don't know that I could give you an answer. I'd probably just default mm. to go bear. I wouldn't feel good about it. This question comes from Ian 42 on discord and it follows a similar line. Uh, top five, small forward point of attack defenders who can guard positions one through four. So the way this question is phrased is very specific and fro 
who that that's Adam. I call Adam Fro. If people on the podcast, I wonder if they know that. But I call Adam Fro. I don't know. Uh, I did, which you know, is they, ironic. They know it now. Given Fro, the lack of hair, Fro came up with a way to try and like specify this. So why why don't you? Why don't yeah, you take yeah. So I, I looked at B-ball Index, which has defensive play analyzed on so many different granular granular levels from defensive roles to versatility indexes to the the position they guard most frequently and all of that. So I, I looked at their positional versatility metric, just showing how frequently players are guarding different positions and only looked at players they have classified as point of attack defenders. The issue here is that this isn't saying they're high quality. It's saying that they're point of attack defenders who do guard a lot of positions, but like Russell Westbrook is fifth on this list and has by no means played good defense for the Los Angeles Lakers this year. So I kind of wanted to just present the top of this list and see if we could parse out the players we also thought belonged from a quality standpoint. So the top 10 going from most versatile to least versatile, again, of these very versatile players, Aaron Gordon, Dorian Finney-Smith, Kyle Lowry, Andrew Wiggins, Russell Westbrook, Eric Gordon, DeAndre Hunter, Javante Green, Norman Powell, and Matisse Tybel. And I am only looking at players with over a thousand minutes. So from that list, I think that Gordon is a good answer to this question. I think that Finney Smith is a good answer to this question. I think that Tybel is a phenomenal answer to this question. And then going down a little further on the list, like guys like Drew Holiday show up. Fred Van Vliet is an interesting one. Um, Beyond that, it seems to be a lot of guys who get torched in a lot of different roles, though. Right. And I think it's if we were to do this like anecdotally, where maybe I think some of the guys that you might put on this list, like a Mikael Bridges, probably doesn't classify as a point of attack defender based on how they can do it, not the primary role. Right. So, you know, him, Marcus Smart. Uh, probably the fact that he w- doesn't classify as a point of attack defender probably just proves that he belongs is the answer to this question um, when looking at the scope that he covers and looking at small forwards specifically, because we know smart's not a small forward. That's just, I would throw that piece of criteria out the window just because like positions are so fluid at this point. It's a non-existent. And if we're asking for guys who are guarding four different positions, then I don't know that their primary listed position should truly matter anyway. Right. So uh, I'd be curious to see like the, and B-Ball Index does have this. They have a wealth of information at that site, like the sort of positional breakdowns of those guys that are, you know, uh, classified as the most versatile. Like Matisse Thibel, I feel like I never necessarily see him guard that far up. And I'm actually looking now. Yeah, so he guards power forwards 15% of the time, which is not insignificant, but he's basically at 25 plus percent on one through threes. So it's interesting how that distribution impacts that. I would say his name, Finney Smith, Gordon, and Holiday. I know he doesn't defend up a lot, but those feel like the inclusions that, if you were even to say it anecdotally, that are most likely to come up. Like from if that- we remove the if we remove the point of attack clarification on B ball index, the top ten in positional versatility this season, again with a thousand or more minutes, Scotty Barnes number one, Nicholas Batum number two. Jimmy Butler, three, Aaron Gordon, four, Grant Williams, five, OG Ananobi, Dorian Finney-Smith, Jaden McDaniels, Josh Hart, and Jay Sean Tate. I can see that. Most, of those, most of those guys are, are listed as wing stoppers. 
the because and that's those guys are going to spend more time on fours. Like that's how you get to the yep. this reason the fours. That's how you get to that yep. classification. I will say a name that I had jotted down because I did this a completely different way. I won't go through my entire list and we named a bunch of them already. I would just like props because you think that I despise this player and he hasn't played <laughs> enough minutes this season to wind up on any of these lists. Dylan Brooks is someone who sprang to mind for me. Look, all I'm saying is that ever since I accused you of being a Dylan Brooks hater, you can't stop saying good things about him. So like, I, th- I feel like you're overcompensating a little here, but I, I appreciate that because Dylan Brooks deserved it. JT Alexander asks, what trade offers would the Lakers realistically get for a 29-year-old Anthony Davis coming um, coming off the back of an injury-riddled season? I mean, this is, this is a Dan question through and through, but I'll just say before letting you run free here that I don't know that Davis's appeal is going to be diminished that much if he truly is put on the market because he's still such a game-changing force in his 20s. Like the injury history is really troubling, obviously, but he is the kind of player that you still dream about acquiring. So we might dis- we might disagree on that because I think it's just been proven now and I don't want to diminish what he can do, but you can't build a team around him, not a good one. It's just he doesn't have the the offensive skill set to do that, to be a real featured weapon. We saw it in New Orleans. And unless he's going to ever play like he did in the bubble in 2020, like you just can't run an offense around him. And that's why the comparisons to Giannis are just so ridiculous. Giannis is. But don't you think that, don't you think that that might change if he wasn't playing on a team with LeBron James and and now Russell Westbrook? I, I feel like I could still see franchises who don't typically have pathways to stars of this caliber wanting to test that out enough that I don't know that his trade return would diminish. And that's the perspective that I'm focusing on here. So I think it would diminish just because I'm not placing the blame for the Pelicans never winning huge while he was there, but drew holiday then under the circumstances should have been like the quintessential like co-partner for him. And the Pelicans just never got to these exalt. And there was a lot of stuff that happened there. I just think this is not, the Lakers aren't going to, and this is with him under contract for longer. So he's two years left than a player option worth 43 plus million. You probably assume he's going to be coming off his age 30 season next year's age 29. Yeah. So he's coming off his age 30 season with that player option. He probably declines it, but you know, you have him for two years. I'd be shocked if the Lakers got anywhere near what they gave up to get him. And I actually think what they gave oh, up. Oh, sure. Sure. 100%. Paid, but, but yeah. And I'm going through like teams. Yeah, there'd be a bunch of teams that would trade for Anthony Davis. But, like, who are the teams that would mortgage the farm for him? I these are the teams that I the thought. Knicks. <laughs> <laughs> these are the teams that I thought of where it might make sense. So I thought about Atlanta, build something around Clint Capella, Hunter, mm-hmm. and picks. And that would be with Trey Young. I feel like that makes sense. Seems like a dream pairing. Uh Charlotte, anyone outside of LaMelo Ball just isn't bolted down. Yep. Same uh, reasoning. I th- this one's a stretch. Just they don't have the assets, but I would absolutely do it. Dallas pairing with Luca would just be absolutely mm-hmm. absurd. And that was what about Memphis. I thought about that, but sir, are you giving up Desmond Bain to get Anthony Davis when you have Jaron Jackson Jr.? Yes. 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 I. And you know how pro I am keeping Memphis together too. Right. Oh, what about, okay. This is just as an example, I'm not saying like, would you, if you're the Lakers and Miami 
offered you Kyle Lowry, Tyler Hero, and stuff. Like, is my is that should Miami consider something like that, or do you not like Bam AD? I don't really like Bam AD there. I feel like it's like I, they can work together. Bam is versatile enough to definitely make that happen. I just don't know that it's a worthwhile move because at some point you're running into diminishing marginal returns. The a couple other teams that had at least circled for all, oh, and I just refreshed the whatever I was on. Um, so the Knicks were on there, but whatever. Minnesota, because he doesn't like playing center. Towns is already there. Those two kind of fit. Yeah, but what are you giving up to make it happen? Because if you're not moving Towns, you're definitely not moving Anthony Edwards. True. The value there, that's going to be tough. Oklahoma City has the picks if the Lakers are willing to rebuild. What about New Orleans? Pair him with Zion? No. Oh, that would be great. That would, just imagine that. Just I'm trying to picture the reactions. Uh, would you – this is just – this is strictly hypothetical. Would you build something around DeAndre and Cam Johnson if you're Phoenix? I don't think I would. I, 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 why, why would you mess with what Phoenix has going on right now? That's the biggest thing. Uh, Portland was another team. Pair him with Dame. For, for as long as Dame's there. The, my dark horse, and this is the last one I have that I think would make sense for, Toronto. Like, that would just be, I, are you building around Pascal Siakam? I would, it's like, just because you have so many different options on this team, I look at this and say, the only players I'm probably not giving up for Anthony Davis would be Fred Van Fleet and OG. Those are just the guys that I'm. And if you're really you give up Scotty Barnes for it, would you give? Okay, so would it take Scotty Barnes and Siakam to get Anthony Davis? I think so. Then I and that's that's kind of what I mean. If, that's kind of what I mean. Right? Trent, I don't. I don't think the trade value has gone down that much. You're not going to recoup what you gave up to get him in LA in the first place. We are still talking about like a guaranteed when healthy all-star in his twenties who has all NBA upside on a yearly basis. Would you give up? We, we are not that far removed from Davis being on the periphery of the MVP conversation. Yes. But if the a Lakers... lot has happened between then and now, but if there's so, a bidding war, so if you were Toronto, you know what I mean? If you were Toronto, you would give up Trent, Siakam, or Barnes, or, and then plus picks, whatever it takes from there. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Hmm. I don't know that I, I don't know if I would do it. There's like a chance I might like Pascal Siakam more just because of his ball skills than Anthony Davis. Oh, offensively. Anthony Davis is clearly the better defender. Right. Maybe, I'm, maybe that's too spicy. Let's move on. That seems like a good spot to move on from. Uh, J Dobbs 94 asks if the jazz have another unsuccessful postseason first slash second round exit, uh, they have in parentheticals. What do you think the front office will do? Please give a reasonable outcome and an extreme outcome. The extreme outcome might be the reasonable outcome, but I was thinking the same thing where I'm not sure those are all that different because if you're doing it, like, what are you doing? If it's not an extreme move. Right, like what? If you're making these moves on the margins, like, are you going to get rid of like Bogdanovich? Like, is is that a needle mover? To me, I I think. To me, the if you're blowing it up, it's Donovan Mitchell is on the on the way out. Oh, see, I would look at it the other way around. Donovan Mitchell is the more valuable player to you in the playoffs. Agreed, but Donovan Mitchell is the more likely to ask out of those, or at least so it seems. The extreme would be trading one or both of your two stars and just starting over. That would be the extreme. 
Uh, and if you, look, if you're trading Donovan Mitchell, to me, you probably might as well trade Rudy Gobert if anyone's going to be willing to take on that contract. I think the reasonable outcome would be Bogdanovich, and now we are putting these distant first-round picks on the table. What does that get us? I don't know what it right. I don't. I, the problem is I don't know what it gets you. You could really use a Jeremy Grant type player. You could also use like you need some backup guards. Uh, is like the middle ground that you, you need need. a lot of things. And you can't even look at moving Mike Conley because that defeats the purpose. I mean, you could, but that almost defeats the purpose of of one of the things that you need. It just makes the playmaking hierarchy that much thinner. So, but that the reasonable or the I won't even say it's reasonable because. If the Jazz decide that they need to do more of a wholesale pivot, I would agree. Like it, they're at the point where they're kind of getting. I know they have excuses and legitimate excuses. I'm not using that in a derogatory yes. right for why they've been eliminated. But it gets to a point where it's this team has been so good for so long. If you can't make it past the second round, you grow stale. So reasonably, you could do whatever. I think if you were trying to keep this intact and not overreact or do something nuclear, is Bogdanovich plus you can trade your 2026 and 2028 picks. Like you, I don't know. I don't know who that gets you. I don't even know if I would trade that much for Jeremy Grant. Anthony Davis, maybe. Anthony Davis and Rudy Gobert would be quite <laughs> Um, Demos also asks, what would be the plan for the Warriors to integrate Moses? What, what should be the plan for the Warriors to integrate Moses Moody into the rotation? Because so far he's only been playing when everyone is out. He's a second follow-up question about James Wiseman, but let's let's stick with the the Moody. I kind of like what they've been doing with him. I mean, he started the other night against Denver. He's played significant minutes when these guys have been out, and he's been paired with the stars so that he's not tasked with doing too much, so that he can show off these these flashes of growth. And he's looked like he's capable of holding his own, even at this, this early stage, you know, Steve Kerr recently mentioned that he's strongly considering the possibility of using different starting lineups on a game by game basis, a series by series basis in the playoffs. And I, I would have confidence in him to do that at this point, because this Warriors team does have so many high quality players. You know, we, there was also, I, I think it came via the athletic, the report about Kerr having internal pressure to play Jordan Poole more. You know, maybe even at Clay Thompson's expense while he's been struggling. And that was before the, the Saturday night breakout that Thompson had with, I think, 38 points. Uh, there's there's a lot of different lineup options here, and they're all good ones. So I, I like the way that the Warriors have been bringing along these, these young guys, Moses Moody and, and Jonathan Kaminga, chief among them at the moment, because they're they're getting chances to play legitimately impactful minutes in a way that isn't detrimental to the team, even if they go through rookie struggles. So I, I really wouldn't change much. I also don't think that you can, is the issue that you run into here. We've already, I think one of the things you could do is say, Moses Moody is going to be ahead of Juan Toscano Anderson in the rotation. And it seems like, we'll look at the Bucks game specifically, that he is. You run into just a minutes problem. So Draymond Green is going to come back. You can cut all of Bielitsa's minutes if you want to. Have Draymond take those then have him eat into some of Looney's minutes. So you'll have Kaminga, Draymond, Looney sort of up front. But it's whose minutes is he taking? You have to play pool. You have to play Wiggins. clay. Uh, it would be Wiggins or like Otto Porter Jr. So he didn't play in the Milwaukee game. So when Otto Porter Jr. comes back, but even if Otto Porter Jr. comes back, some of the, 
these other guys' minutes have to go down. So I'm with you that I think the one thing they've done is tethering his minutes to certain players makes a lot of sense. It's going to have to be more of just a, a situational decision with his minutes, though, because I don't know that you look at anyone and say, unless you're just like, you could say what you want about Andrew Wiggins. He's been bad since the All-Star break, but then he also has this huge game against the Bucks on Saturday night. So I think you just keep doing what you're doing. It's just, it's hard to still guarantee him playing time. The closest you yeah. can come is say, uh, is going to say like, we're going to call his number before JTAs. But even look, that might, and even if you say, we'll give his number, we'll call his number before Otto Porter Jr. Even though Porter Jr. can play some big man minutes for you. Andre Godal is going to come back too. So are you just going to not play Iggy? I so I, I do think that you're you're right on the money with what you said. And I do think that, you know, if push comes to shove, because there are only so many minutes in a game, unless the Warriors are just intentionally going to triple overtime every time out, which would be dumb, um, you have to prioritize Kaminga over Moody. The other question here on the Warriors was, how do we expect Wiseman's role to be and what is his ceiling? Do you think assistant coach Dayan Milosevic can help him reach his potential? So the first question I'll just say, and I think we both agree, James Wiseman doesn't have a role this year. It's just, it's not happening. He'll do nothing this year. Yeah. Uh, what yeah is I, I don't think he should play this year. Right. I mean, he's in the G League now. That's fine. Like, keep going with that. And if you want to give him garbage time at the NBA level, practice time, of course, do that for sure if he's healthy. Uh, his ceiling? I don't know. I, like, I'm like i not someone who watches a ton of college basketball. He only had three college basketball games last year. Look, if he can, if he can show improvement as a rebounder and defender, that's his path to helping this team the most. He has to get more diverse on offense, I think is the way to phrase it, which is where Milosevic comes in because we know that he's credited with working with Nikola Jokic among other guys, but Nikola Jokic is like the, the why wouldn't Nikola Jokic be the crowning story? Is he going to like infuse James Washington with a higher understanding of offense, how to move the ball or just give him like and help I, him. The, with the top score? priority needs to be being able to catch the ball, which he struggled with even that as a rookie, but I do think he could help, but, and I just don't know if it's going to, I do think James Wiseman's potential is probably more of a streamlined big man on offense where it's pick and pop, pick and roll. Maybe he can put the ball on the floor a little bit in space, but I don't think he's, you're going to want to run the offense through him, work him in the post. I don't even know if I trust him to make a bunch of decisions with the ball that perhaps that's where Milosevic though can make the biggest impact is ball control. So coordination, let's say that he, and then, like basketball IQ. I don't know how, to, I don't want to call James Wiseman stupid. He's a smarter basketball player than 99% of people who've ever played basketball probably because he's made it this far. But I just, I don't know that when, when you watched him last year and even just knowing what he's supposed to be, like, I don't know if you have this player who's going to operate on a higher plane of existence offensively. I feel like if you're the Warriors, you're kind of hoping that he turns into like a version of DeAndre Ayton in a lot of ways. Ooh. Yeah, and that's that's still dreaming pretty big at this point because we just haven't seen it to the three games in college, a handful of games in the NBA, which didn't look very good. And then we're evaluating high school tape again. So, (laughs) yeah, I I think if if anyone is telling you they know what James Weissman can be, they're full of it. That I just and I and when are they going to work him in, though, is my like you we're looking to next season in year three. That's kind of wild. This is why I have firmly been advocating for them to trade him when they can, because the stock is only going to keep going down and it's not even through a fault of his own. You know, even if he's developing on a good schedule, 
you know, we just we just covered how hard it is to allocate minutes to Moody and Kaminga, who have already shown that they're way further along in their development into NBA caliber players. So like at some point, other teams are going are, are gonna to balk because Wiseman hasn't been on the floor, even if that's a roster construction issue and not a him issue. I have been wondering, just because the Warriors are so committed to balancing this era with the next one, what would have to happen in the playoffs? Like, How would the playoffs have to end for them to increase the urgency with which they would consider trading their younger guys and future picks? Would it be have to be a first round? I think it's like a first round exit because the West has so much parity this year that like you can very easily explain away a second round loss. I'm probably with you. And they might not even do anything after a first round loss because they, it yeah. seems like the, the people that run that team are just very intent on, we're not mortgaging the future. Like we're going to develop. And let's, let's be real. Like they've done an amazing job of straddling those eras. Like, they still have all of the key pieces from the dynastic version of the Warriors. They're incorporating Moody. They're incorporating Kuminga, whose ceiling looks about as high as he can jump. They still have Weissman. Jordan Poole looks like an absolute stud. Like, there's a lot to like about the future of the Warriors, even while they've kept everything intact. Like, kudos to that organization because it truly has been light years ahead. Wow. Uh, let's move on to the next Discord question. Jolt the Goat asks, after the crackdown on grifting fouls this season, there's been a big push to eliminate the take foul next season. How would you officiate it? It seems like a gray area foul that would be hard to literally define in the real rule book. So I would imagine it would fall under, I know it when I see it situation. I could see teams having a problem with that in the heat of the moment. Also, how would you penalize it? Two shots in the ball, team technical, just leave it uncalled and let the play go on. I think you treat it like a defensive three seconds, but also give a foul to the player in violation where they do get the technical foul shot and the ball. As for how you legislate against it, I think it is ultimately like a subjective call made by the referees. And ultimately, most calls are subjective. You know, we have a rule book that identifies what the violation is specifically, but it's still open for interpretation. You know, the referees do their, the best job they can of applying that rule book correctly. But how many times have we seen, you know, somebody, you know, banging away in the post and are they lowering their shoulder? Are they not? Like, is it a charge? Is it a blocking foul? Like that's subjectively determined. So I think that, you know, it, it can't be as simple as like a clear path foul. Cause that's such an obvious one where they're ahead of any of the defenders, but you know, maybe it's something like you know, if, if there are fewer players in a fast break opportunity, if there are fewer offensive players down the or if there are fewer defensive players down the court than offensive players and it's you know a, a foul as the guy goes by you where it's just clearly an intentional foul and that's the other part of this that doesn't get recognized like it's an intentional foul you know like most fouls are not intentional they're unintentional they're incidental contact they're a violation of the rules but these take fouls are guys just grabbing another player like that's pretty fucking intentional so I, I don't feel like even if it's subjective, it's that hard to determine subjectively. I Yeah, and I'm with you. I, if you were really worried about discrepancies, you could maybe give the coaches an extra challenge per game that would only be able to be used on that type of foul. But they're just so obvious and egregious that if if it's questionable, maybe they won't call it because it means that they're like going about making plays in the ball the right way. But I'm absolutely of the mind. I'd like to, the defensive three-second uh, penalization type where it's one shot and the ball plus assess the foul to the player who committed it. Uh, I, but you have to penalize it at some point because these, these plays are just ridiculous and they break up 
what should be like some of the most exciting plays in basketball in transition. And also just, it kills the flow of the game further there. So just like how they've kind of weeded out some of the gimmicky attempts to draw fouls. And that's been a lot of, you know, that's obviously up to the the officials in, in their own judgment. This can be the same thing. These are just so egregious that there's less of a gray area. I feel like for the most part. And while we're at it, can we also get rid of blowing plays dead for shot clock violations when it's a clear rebound by the defensive team? Like it's not that hard to apply an advantage rule like you see in hockey or in soccer, you know, where there's a delayed penalty in effect. The, the only thing though with that is, are you, so you're not assessing the team a shot clock violation. You're letting it play on because I get the, if the ball is in the air, if the ball is in the air before the shot clock violation, don't sound the buzzer, see what happens. And if it's a rebound by the defensive team, then go for it. I'd be with it. I bet they're the teams that missed the shot would prefer the chance to get their defense set. But I, I totally, I totally understand that. Don't miss the shot then. This question comes from Darkwing Duck. Why the hell is Terrell Owens in front of, in, in the front row of a Kings at Jazz game in March? I think he was wearing the same shades as the that's my quarterback speech. Why not? I tried to find out why he was actually uh, at that game. Um, I'm, I'm like, there, there's a tweet from 2020 where I think he references the Jazz and he might be friends with Jordan Clarkson. So is that why he was there? That's the only, I, that seems random. If anyone knows about a history of Terrell Owens, the Utah, the Jazz, any players on the Jazz, feel free to add us. But that was truly one of the more, felt like the more random famous cameos from a, from a, from a fan. For all we know though, he was just in Utah and felt like attending a game. Kyler asks every fan base seems to think that the media is biased against their team. Are there any teams that you feel have a legitimate case to claim this or are we all just homers? I feel like we're all just homers. You know, fan is by definition short for the word fanatic. And I think that says a lot. Like, I don't know that the other, the other issue that I have here is like the media is not a singular entity. Right. Right. So like certain, certain media personalities might be biased against a specific team, a specific player, but the media in general is not like, let's do what we can to make sure the Detroit Pistons don't get enough national airtime. I will say I, the Pistons plus the the Kings, those are two teams that I look at where it feels like there can be an absence of nuance when it comes to coverage that's not team-specific, where it's someone who covers those teams on a day-to-day basis. That's not to loop all media into one, but let's use the Kings as an example. We're all in a rush to just troll them for every single decision they make because they're the Kings. Uh, and then with the – or the Thunder would be the other one, people trolling them mm-hmm. for tanking where it's like there's a real rebuild going on there if you've right. watched the Thunder at all or paid attention That's to them. It's going pretty well. Right. So those are the three teams I would just single out as a there could stand to be more nuance. That's fair. Maybe the Magic too. The Magic would be fair. I also thought about the Raptors a little bit. They seem to go overlooked still. I know the Raptors fans think that people believe their team doesn't exist and that's an extreme, but I don't think that's like born from some misplaced insecurity. I think it's legitimately the Raptors have been 
in part because they're not going to be on national TV a ton because they are in Canada. Uh, but it also, even after like the title season with Kawhi, it just feels like they, right. they want a title within the last half decade. And they're just, they feel like a footnote, which is weird to me. And they have the yeah. best basketball executive in the business and they still feel like a footnote. I'm right there with you. I, I think that's no, I think that's totally fair, but I, I mean, it's every team's players, every team itself feels like there's bias against it. Yeah. You know, LeBron James, Los Angeles Lakers, most famous player in the sport went on his crusade about washed King and, you know, how everyone was doubting the quality of this year's Lakers team, because they were all saying it was too old and all that, you know, like let's, let's prove the media wrong. It's, it's everywhere. Is there a team where you think the fan base will claim this, but they couldn't be more wrong? I guess it would have to be the Lakers. If you think the Lakers aren't being, if you think there's an agenda against the Lakers, Jake, as don't know if it's oh Jake as well no, no, no. let's say the Cavs continue to slide into the play-in tournament. How good should fans feel about their team moving forward, drastically exceeding expectations, having a stud with Mobley and Garland is clearly the man. In the moment, probably got to be pretty disappointed, but this year proved they have some building blocks. Yeah, absolutely. You still have to be pleased because this this Cavs team has been cursed from an injury perspective. You know, Darius Garland is back now, but he missed time. Rajon Rondo is out. Colin Sexton is out. Jared Allen is out indefinitely. Of course, you're sliding down the standings and you should still be very encouraged about having three all-star level players in your lineup already in Garland, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen, you know, all of whom could have made the all-star team in the Eastern Conference this season. The And I'll also say the thing that you should be worried about if you're a Cavs fan is you don't want them to try accelerating this reinvention because it's not yeah. really a rebuild anymore. Yeah. it's a rebuild but it's just they're so close i would use the word that you don't want them to over accelerate their position the carriage the vert trade i think was ultimately fine but you don't want to see them go out there and make Agreed. a bunch of rash decisions this offseason based off this you don't want them to trade for anthony davis <laughs> maybe you do i mean they might start him in point guard <laughs> larry marketed evan mobley jared allen throw dean wade out there and anthony davis there's your lineup kevin love maybe instead of Dean. love wade. it Jake did ask another question about the defensive player of the year discussion, but I'm actually going to get more in depth on that specific topic with a guest this coming week. So I'm going to leave it, Jake. It's a really good question, which is why I'm only teasing it now. So everyone should come back for the next episode in the middle of the week. Let's move on. We have a couple of Twitter questions. Anthony asks, could you imagine if the Hornets had Mitchell Robinson? Are we a certified average team? If you think, I'm going to take this one just because if you think Mitchell Robinson is going to be the answer to a lot of what's ailing Charlotte, I'd probably push back. He's not a good enough rebounder, I think, to fix what's gone on with them. And yeah, he'd help the interior defense. I will also argue that they are still not in the bottom 10 of points allowed per possession. When you look at their personnel, their center rotation, that's overachieving. So maybe Mitchell Robinson makes you a lot better. But that might be the way to phrase it is how Anthony said, yeah, you might be a certified average defense. The difference between ranking 20th and 16th or something. I will say during one of the earlier questions from this mailbag, though, I couldn't help but think about Rudy Gobert and Charlotte. How do you feel about that fit? I think it would work. I'd be curious to see how he plays if up-tempo with the mellow there. Um it would be a change of pace, quite literally. You give it a Gordon Hayward reunion in Utah to get him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rebuild around Gordon Hayward in Utah. 
so but thing- I, I, I kind of like that pairing. If you can, if you can do that while retaining Miles Bridges, a Lamelo Ball, Miles Bridges, Rudy Gobert trio is fun. You also, you have to. There's no way you're getting out of that deal without giving up. Because what is it? Book night, PJ Washington, and then every single pick and swap that you're eligible yes, to trade. Exactly. Which, by the way, you're not going to have a lot of picks to trade unless the one to New York or now it's owed to Atlanta. That fucking Cam Reddish trade was a disaster. I know he was playing better before he got injured, but that Cam Reddish trade was, by basketball standards, a catastrophe. Um, that pick is not going to convey to be murky. The one thing that's a good point here, aside from Rudy Gobert being a quality fit, is I could see teams worrying about his contract. 38.2 million next year, 41 million the year after that, 43.8 the year after that, and then a $46.7 million player option. Because during this span, you're going to get two more years of LaMelo on his rookie scale. Not super cheap, but super cheap relative to what he could cost you. And then the max that he signs is going to be his first max. So you're not dealing with a, a veteran max necessarily. Charlotte might be the team that could talk itself into not worrying about Rudy Gobert's contract because their team doesn't have to be mega expensive is my point until the final two years of his deal. So food for thought. I just don't know if they can build. Do you think they could build a package enticing enough? If let's just say Utah's willing to move Gobert after the season, do you think Charlotte without LaMelo has the assets necessary to peak? If the jazz still want to win and you're dangling. Yeah. It really depends on the motivation that the jazz have in blowing. Are they blowing it up or are they like, trying to fix things around Donovan Mitchell with a different line of construction. If it's the latter, you need a third team. Probably not. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, even if it's not Terry Rozier, James Booknight, Kai Jones, PJ Washington, like those are you're probably, if you're Utah, you probably want miles bridges as part of that deal. That would be the, I think you're, you're pushing for him to be included for sure. And it would have to be a sign and trade. So he would want to have to go to Utah as well, which is just, just pointing that out. I'm not inferring anything. This question comes from Charles, who said we talked about on the last pod when we were ranking futures, but Adam wasn't there. And I think he, we could go in deeper to this. He says, can Fox and Sabonis be the nucleus of the next great Kings team? This presupposes that there will be a next great Kings team. And that's a pretty big leap. Oh, I had a, I had a similar joke queued up about how I was a little confused by the question because next implies that there has been one. That's... That's mean and also untrue. It's media bias against the Kings. There it is. Just <laughs> thus proving what, thus proving our answer to the previous question. I still worry about the fit here. I still, I still don't know that I like De'Aaron Fox, who moves in hyperspeed when he's trying to operate slowly, and DeMontis Sabonis, who wants to slow things down and operate methodically within the half court set. I don't know that I love that fit enough to think that this could turn into the nucleus of a great team. It helps that Fox has been playing better since the trade. It helps that Sabonis has been so effective since the trade, but it's also not translating into wins. I mean, they have have two wins as as we're recording this since the all-star break. So what, what is the pathway to future improvement here. Is it, is it Mitchell blowing up and, and becoming an absolute star as a sophomore? Is it Rashawn Holmes becoming the player Dan wants him to be? Is it Dante DiVincenzo going boom? Like which free agent is going to come in and make a big impact here? 
are you going to rely on hitting on another draft pick? Like, I just, I don't know that this move was a precursor to more. So I'm actually, and I was doubting the offensive fit when the trade first happened after watching and going through some of their plays together. I'm ultimately fine with it. Fox has played so well. I think he's moved off. Fine with it is, well. is still not excited about it. What's that? Being fine with it is different than well, being excited about it. I'm saying offensively, you can be excited about it. They have a 117 okay. offensive rating with those two on the court, which is in the 89th percentile. And the fit is not, and they don't have an, I personally, I don't think when you look on paper, they don't have enough shooters around them just yet. So that's the pathway to getting better on offense. It's defense. That's a problem because Fox has been just as bad as advertised on that end. I know people want to bang the Sabonis is underrated on defense drum. If he's your five, you got to have like positive defenders in front of them, of which they do not have very many right now. DiVincenzo has not been that guy for the Bucks or for them. He's coming back from injury. Justin Holiday is, is fine. Harrison Barnes is fine. Uh, Davion Mitchell's like trying to run through a brick wall. So he's great, but you need players who can also provide that type of oomph while also being more consistent with their offense or, or at least their jump shot when looking at Mitchell specifically, that's the path to building around Fox and Sabonis. You need to surround them with high quality defenders who are not net negatives on offense. They do not have nearly enough of those players right now. You also need one of them. And I'm looking at Fox for the most part needs to play better defensively. Like that is the, that's what makes me uneasy is that this skews so offense first between those two, Mm -hmm. that that's the bigger issue. How do you flesh out the team around them? And my answer would be overall, no, I don't think this is going to be the next great version of the Kings. I think it skews too far offense. And I also look flat out. I know some people have a lot of respect for Monty McNair. That's great. I don't trust this organization under Vivek Ranadiv. I didn't trust it before him, but just to be clear, there's decisions they've made have been questionable enough to bad enough to where I don't need to trust them. And I don't. So my, my answer would be no, but I will say I am excited about what they can do offensively with Sabonis and Fox. And that's based off just seeing, I haven't seen every game they play together. Again, I went back and watched a lot of the plays they were involved with together. And so I am excited about that. I'll, I'll clarify on, on my answer. I don't think that they're going to be like a disastrous offense or anything like that. I just, I don't know that they're good enough on offense to counterbalance the putridity on defense. And if you're putting enough shooters around them that that offense is sustainable, you're just in all likelihood creating more issues to be solved on the defensive end. So I, I, I think that they're talented enough that this could be the core of a team that sneaks in at the back end of the Western conference playoffs. And that's a huge success for a Sacramento organization that hasn't been there in a long time. I don't know how much higher than that. The ceiling goes. Maybe if they win the lottery this year, that's like what I'm not even this is to not the greatest year to win the lottery. though. Fair enough. So maybe if they win the lottery next year, because I, I don't but know. Then this pairing obviously isn't working. Like, and that's the other thing, like this is, so typical Sacramento that like this, the year that it's really bad, <laughs> the, the draft is like, it's not worth being that bad for. We're, I think we're mostly in locks up there. The one thing I will correct you is I don't need, I think you, you put it better than I did about the offense. Cause I didn't mean to make it sound like they're terrible on offense. I don't think it's a good fit pace wise. It can still work. It requires more pieces. Those pieces make the defense even tougher to build. Yeah, I would just say I think it's already working so that I'm uh, like, you still have concerns. I think theoretically there could be stuff that crops up, but 
you have to keep Harrison Barnes. He's been mission critical to making these two work. Overall, though, the answer is no. And it's not reductive to say it's because it's the Kings, but I think defensively it's going to be hard to flesh out this team. Bios, we asked, how valuable is Tyler Hero? I mean, I, I still think that he is quite a valuable presence for the Heat. He is well, that's in the running thing. for – what was that? That was quite the take. Tyler Hero is valuable to the Heat. How valuable is well, Tyler I'm, Hero? I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what we're going for here. Because like so he's averaging point. he's averaging twenty five and four basically I'm sure twenty five and four. I'm sure you saw a report from Bleach Reports Jake Fisher that a lot of people think he's going to command the full boat in extension talks. So do you think he's worth a five year max in extension talks? Yeah, I do. I do. I think as a as a change of pace guard who can operate on and off the ball, who is already demonstrating that he is an elite scorer with you know, three-point capabilities, both off the dribble and off the catch, whose playmaking skills have been growing year by year. I think he makes sense in that role. I think he's on the lower threshold for what a max player should be in today's NBA, but he's he's at least there. And I'd be curious to see him in a bigger role. I know the way he plays with the Heat helps him, but also he's played a bunch because they've been banged up. And also, here's the thing. Miami just has a bunch of players that get banged up. This is not Kyle Lowry's old. Jimmy Butler has been injured before. Bam Adebayo. I feel like he's had some stuff in the past. That one might not be true still though. Uh, The Heat are winning the minutes he plays without, or they're playing opponents to basically a net even in the minutes he plays without all three of those players. That's a big deal. An even bigger deal. They're winning fairly decidedly the minutes that he and Bam play without Kyle Lowry and Jimmy Butler. And the other thing you can worry about regression here, but we're getting to the point where like this has been his shot diet per B-ball index. He is the sixth worst three-point pull-up shot quality in the league. The sixth worst. He's the third worst mid-range shot quality in the league. Now, when you look at his efficiency in those areas, he's shooting almost 37. He's shooting 36.7% on off-the-dribble threes, on pull-up threes. That's on pull-up threes, that's above average. He is shooting 43% from mid-range this year, which is in the 60th percentile, also above average. When you have players who can hit difficult shots at what would just be above a league average clip, not even relative to the quality of looks, but just the league average in general, that's massive. And I think what you also just talked about and not enough people are talking about, there's been improvement as a passer there, not just with a willingness, but like this is not the greatest barometer for how I view playmakers, but Brandon Ingram's a great example. If you're making passes that I can't see in real time or read because I'm just such an idiot when it comes to the X's and O's of basketball, I've known like you've made some type of jump when it's just the simple stuff that even I could see, then it's okay. Fine. You made the right pass, but he's made more complicated passes this year. So I think you're also right that he probably is on the lower end of what a max contract player would be based off this season though, going into extension talks. I absolutely would not sign if they were offering me less than the max. Right. Uh, and he shouldn't. Uh, the defense is not where it needs to be for him to like truly ascend into that tier, but the playmaking growth. And I really liked how you put it there. And then, you know, I, I think the stats you threw out are great and they, it works from the eye test as well. Because if you watch Tyler Hero play as a, just purely as a scorer, you can easily convince yourself that this is a guy who's going to average 28 plus points for a season. Right. I he mean, has the shot making ability in every area. 
He makes the tough shots. He seeks out those shots when that shot profile eventually improves, which it typically does as players are moving into their second contract and are more familiar with the nuances of NBA defenses and their own skill set. I could, I could realistically see him factoring into a scoring title race one year. And like, this is someone who was a 29 usage this season. That's borderline superstar level. And it's usage. And he only just turned 22 in January. And I guess the thing you could wait, and by the way, it's not because we just went over all this. It's not the type of uses where it gets the ball. It's not a a finishing like big man. This is someone who has the ball in his hands and self creates a good amount. I guess what you could say is how does this translate to the playoffs? He just like the rest of the heat team last year, he was pretty bad in the playoffs. So yeah, I get wanting to see how he fares in the postseason if they're healthy and they have a better team around him. And, but he got it done when in the bubble in 2020, he was great. Right. I get that it was the bubble, but like, this is not, it's not an egregious ask on his part to want a max contract after this season. It's just it's the other, the other type of improvement that I always love to see from young gunners, which is essentially the role that he wants to fill and is capable of filling is the percentage of their field goals made that are assisted as a rookie from three point territory, 78.4 fell to 72.9 as a sophomore. And it's down to 69.8 this season on twos. 47.4% as a rookie, fell to 46.0, 32.7 this year. He is creating so many of his own looks and has not sacrificed efficiency even while spiking in volume. That combination of stats is not easy to come by for young scores. And just just so we're clear, like him creating basically a third or 30% of his own three-point looks, that is significant. I know some people look at that number and it's like, oh, 70% of his three-pointers are assisted okay like that's still that's not a lot yeah (laughs) and also there is something to be said we've seen not so i don't want to use this guy as the example but like andrew wiggins for so long felt like the quintessential guy who was more comfortable operating on ball than off and look at russell westbrook like there's value in being able to toggle between on and off ball responsibilities and tyler hero can do that Mm -hmm. we have two more questions this one is well Fairly quick, but I want to see if you can guess the answer to the different measures of the best crunch time scorer. That was the running man, Albert, asking who has been the best clutch scorer this season. Now, without any numbers or anything into the equation, if you were just giving an anecdotal answer, who would it be? Chris Paul. Chris Paul is like kind of sort of one of the answers in this. So first, I did it by three different categories. Impredictable has clutch win probability added. This is not just scoring, but I thought it was fun to look at just the macro impact in the clutch. I want to go through the top five. I just want to see if you can get any names from that top five. I think you'll get some of them, but. Jokic. One. LeBron. No. I just figured because he does so much. Yeah, and garbage. I mean, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Paul again. Fair. He. Is Paul in the top five despite the low minutes threshold? No. He is, Paul is 20th on the list, which again, given the minutes threshold is probably pretty impressive. Yeah. Is Booker? No, he's not in the top five. You're missing, Mm -hmm. I feel like, at least one obvious guy. Hmm. All right, so we'll... Tatum. No. Tatum is not in the top 20. I'm all over the place. So DeMar DeRozan is one. Oh, duh. Steph is two. Steph is two. See, that surprises me because I've just I've not gotten the sense that he's closing 
that frequently this year. Like not on the court, they're not playing him in crunch time. No, I mean like I'm operating like, as the closer. Yeah. Kyle Kuzma is three. Never would have guessed that. Cam Johnson is four and Jokic is five. See, I knew there was going to be a son in there. <laughs> uh, then the other two ways I looked at this is so we can look at the actual just scoring in crunch time, ir- irrespective of efficiency. Who do you think the answer is the same? So who do you think leads the league in crunch time points scored? I'm going to go with DeRozan. No. He neither leads the league in crunch time points scored, nor does he <laughs> lead it in points per crunch time appearance. If it helps, if it helps. He is number two in both categories. So it's not, uh, that was a good I, I feel, I feel better about that. Then. That is a lie. So he was number it's three obviously in- Kyle Kuzma, right? No, it's not. Uh, DeRozan <laughs> was second in total crunch time points. He is sixth in crunch time points per crunch time appearance. Number one in both categories though, is Joel Embiid. Huh. All right. There's an Jokic- MVP case there for him or something. Jokic is fifth by the way, in crunch time points per appearance and fourth in total crunch time points. John Morant is in the top three of both of these categories as well, in case you care. The final, way to lo- the final way to look at it, and I feel like I kind of already gave this one away, but it's not, it's not Chris Paul. I sorted it by players who have appeared in at least 15 crunch time games or games that enter crunch time. So 15 crunch time appearances, a usage rate of at least, at least 25 in those situations, and then sorted it by true shooting percentage. I want to see how many you can get off the top five. You better kill this one, but I'm going to tell you right now. I'm, I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get any at this point. So, okay, I so feel like I've I've thrown enough bad guesses out there already. So Devin Booker is one. Chris Paul is two. Zach Levine. Cam is, Johnson. No, he's not on there. Sorry. Zach Levine is three. Kyle Lowry is four, and Demar Derozan is five. I felt like you would have gotten three. It's of those nice guys. that Lowry and DeRozan are sticking together. <laughs> Do you want to know who's six, by the way? And I will be insufferable about this. N- Nilakina. Nilakina adjacent. <laughs> Let's say that. RJ Barrett. Nilakina adjacent. RJ Barrett. All right. Looks really good lately, by the way. Really, yeah. really good. Him attacking the basket and getting the usage that he is so is, much better is huge. Final question. Scotty Barnes for rookie of the year. That comes from S. I want to, the one thing I want to note is that he now leads rookies in win shares this season and also win shares for Fort Wall among uh, rookies that have actually played a bunch of minutes, I should say. But he leads all rookies in total win shares. He leads, he's tied for the lead with Mobley and value over replacement player. And he is, they're both high up there in box plus minus. They're, they're again tied. Uh, I think where I'm at with this rookie of the year race is that I have no idea because they're all so good in such I mean, different I ways. Than Mobley too, by the way, Barnes. I still, I still think it's a two man race between Mobley and Barnes. I, I genuinely do not know which I have leading the race because I feel like it changes on a weekly basis. They've both been so ridiculously impressive. And the, the second half surge that Barnes is showing off right now is ridiculous. I personally view rookie of the year as a look at the total impact that was made throughout a player's first season, rather than the level that they reached by the end of the first season, or else Cade Cunningham might have a legitimate case to win. While we've been recording this, uh, I'll be in a, in a close loss to the Clippers, 23, nine and 10. 
another ridiculous performance because all of a sudden it, it feels like he might be jumping over Mobley and like maybe he's going to be the best player from this class long term. So I, I think like if you made me pick right now, I would go Barnes one, Mobley two, Cunningham three, because Barnes has been so consistent throughout the year and has like ascended these last few weeks. But Mobley's defense has been abjectly ridiculous all year. Granted, while playing on a team that needs him to do a little bit more on that end, it's it's so difficult to parse out because I don't want to put down either of these incredible first-year players. And like you're inherently doing that by not having both of them at number one. So the fact that you didn't mention Franz Wagner just proves that you don't watch fucking basketball. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I will say the argument for Cade over Franz Wagner is I know that Cade is like, was not as good during the uh, beginning of the year. He was also injured. He is more central to what Detroit is doing. And so like his peak this season, it's okay to say that he's been a more valuable rookie than Franz Wagner, Uh, especially especially with the way the Pistons have been playing by the way, over the past, like right before the all-star break or so, if you want to put Wagner above him, but it's not, what Adam you said, totally can. You 100% can. But I just, you caught shit on Twitter the other day because, first of all, people don't know who Herb Jones is and don't watch Herb Jones. That's on, that's on them. That fucking whatever that dumbass's name, asshat's name was. I can't even remember. So, but I was just trolling you there. So I have Evan Mobley's of right now because I do feel like he's the fulcrum of the defense. I know Jared Allen does a lot, but they ask him to do so much. And everything Barnes does feels in an ancillary role. And that's why I would probably, if I'm splitting hairs, have Mobley ahead of him. That being said, we are at the point where I think I would have just kept saying Mobley. We're at the point where this is going to be a discussion by the end of the season. And it should be. And if it was a rookie based purely on post all-star break performance, then Cunningham might have the spot over everyone. Right. And it's not, it's rookie of the year. He's not. He's not, if people don't have him in their top three, I'll totally understand. But he is, by the way, to me, he's clearly going to be the best player in this draft class. Like that, I know Evan Mobley is going to be a transcendent like guy. I, but I've, I've been, I've said that I think Mobley has best player in the league potential. And I'm still like, Cade might be, might be the Cade better, has better than the best player in the league potential. I don't know how he that happens, is incredible. He is just able to. The game is on a string. I, I also like, I might, I might put Scotty Barnes in that, like could be the best player in the league conversation at this point. I don't know if I've seen enough from him as I would view someone like needs to be like the primary playmaker to be that maybe I'm over. I don't know. Just cause he's so, I mean, again, like leading B ball indexes, defensive versatility metric as a rookie and also being a positive defender while doing that. What, what if he is a defensive player of the year candidate scoring 20 points per game in a secondary role with playmaking chops? That's a, he's, he's definitely has secondary playmaking chops. It's just because Cade and Mobley, I feel like look like they could be fulcrums of the offense. Yeah. I'm not going to put a cap on Barnes's potential though. This was a fun mailbag was definitely not under an hour, but it was a blast to do. It's close, right? We're not, not anymore. If you're going to ask questions about it. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Down the very episode, recommend us to friends, family members, strangers on the internet, anyone you know who likes or even hates basketball. Until next time, we leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, one of the most clutch players in basketball, 
RJ Barrett, but also Frank Nielakina.